0: no taxation without representation 200 years of
1: exploitation in the capital of this nation no representation in the capital of this nation 200 years of exploitation
0: Give the people their right to vote. Asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long
1: overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People Their Right to Vote. Hello, and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour long grassroots talk show which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia, America's last colony. I'm joined by my co-host, Marilia Duffels, and together we hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. Tonight, we have a very, very important guest, Dr. Cynthia Miller Idris, Uh, Dr. Idris, directs the polarization and extremism extremism research and innovation lab in the Center for University Excellence at American University, one of our great universities here in Washington. Dr. Miller Idris is also a professor in the School of Public Affairs and also the School of Education. She has testified before the U.S. Congress and regularly pleases briefs policy, security, education, and intelligence agencies in the U.S., the United Nations, and other countries on trends in domestic violence, extremism, and strategies for, for, for prevention and disengagement. And she's here tonight to, to brief us. So thanks so much for being with us, uh, Cynthia. We, we're, we're really happy to have you on the show. Thank you. Uh, we, we think this is such an important issue so we can 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 we start with just the basic what is what's fueling what seems to be this new more violent virulent stream of a virulent form of hate here in america what's fueling this what's going on that's, that's
2: a million dollar question thank you thank you for having me i mean there's uh there's no perfect formula to explain, you know, that we've had several different incidents of, of mass shootings that were targeting uh, you know, a church in California and, and uh of course in Buffalo um black Americans and then the 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 horrific uh targeting of the elementary school in Texas. I mean these are all distinct in their own ways and all I would say have some threads that connect them and so you know, one of the things that's going on is that Obviously, we have um, uh, spent two two plus years in a pandemic in which there is a tremendous amount of propaganda circulating online, hateful propaganda, conspiracy theories, and um, uh, disinformation. And uh, so one of those, uh, in, in the case of the Buffalo attacker, this is a very clear case of online radicalization during the pandemic, according to his own words where he was, spending uh, a lot of time online, was bored, as many teenagers, uh, virtually everybody's lives shifted online, and especially young people. Um, And he encountered this propaganda about a a great replacement, which is a racist conspiracy theory that's false and dangerous, that uh, positions um, demographic change and immigration as an existential threat to white people, says that white people are being deliberately replaced um, in order to secure... More power, and the people who are the supposed puppet masters vary depending on where you are. Sometimes it's Muslims if you're in Europe, um, who they say want to expand the caliphate. That's the conspiracy. Here in the U.S., it's either Democrats, depending on you know, who want to secure power with votes, or uh, or often Jewish people. Are, so it's an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. So there's a lot of different ways that that conspiracy. Uh, is articulated, and we have seen it um, in Christchurch, New Zealand, in El Paso, Texas, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and now in Buffalo, motivate massive violence against targeted groups, against vulnerable and, and historically underrepresented minorities in, in different places in different countries. So that, that case is really very clear. He had left a lot of breadcrumbs. He left a lot of uh, information online that makes his motivation very, very clear, in the case of the Texas shooter, a lot of that is still unfolding, um, but he didn't leave as deliberate an explanation of his actions, and so, you know, it's still being pieced together. We do know that he spent a lot of time in online gaming, and we know that he expressed a tremendous number of threats and misogynistic threats against young women, against other, against women online, and uh, threatened, threatened to kill people, threatened to... To shoot up a school, you know, so all of these things were major warning signs that something was wrong that uh, that really went overlooked. So, you know, my answer there is that there's a lot of different things going on, and it depends on um, on where you are looking. And one of the things, of course, that unites all of these is. is Uh, a tremendous access to guns uh, and much, much more. I mean, I heard that the statistics said that after Parkland, there were 300 million guns in the country. Now there are 400 million. So the numbers are just going up and up, and these are legally obtained weapons, um, but it's far too easy to obtain them for somebody who wants to do harm like this.
1: Well, let me ask you, I mean, this is the oldest of political uh, ruses, I guess, is that you're not at fault it's always your neighbor right mm-hmm. my uh one of my favorite uh, politicians Huey Long used to say there are 100,000 frenchmen in new orleans your house could burn down your baby could drown not one of those frenchmen would care we're always blaming it on somebody else but so is it is it social media mm-hmm. is it the internet that's really making a big difference these days that even though this is an old canard, it's now, uh, be, you're now able to spread it more yeah. effectively?
2: Yeah, I think that's that's a big part of it. So, I mean, you're right, these ideas, these uh, racist and uh, misogynistic ideas, anti-Semitic ideas, anti-immigrant ideas are age old. We've always had scapegoating and fear-mongering and all these kinds of tactics that try to blame others, um, that try to uh, create, racist explanations for inequalities in the world that don't um, explain the facts, for example, of structural racism or systematic racism, um that, that lead to those inequalities. So we've always seen that. What we see now though, over the last ten years or so, is that the way that social media and, and other and online spaces, so not just social media itself, but online gaming spaces, YouTube, you know, basically anywhere, anytime you go to look online for something, your search search engines, they are driven by algorithms and those algorithms make recommendations. Um, So there's several different ways that you can land on information that is false, that is conspiracy theory-laden, that is disinformation, propaganda, whereas you used to have to kind of seek it out. You had to sign up for a listserv or join the KKK with, you know, initiation rights and a membership list. Now... What I assume, my research lab's assumption is that wherever you are online, eventually you're going to land on that. We we often say people, everybody's two clicks away from bad content. You know, you can easily click on a hyperlink, follow a recommended link, and and just get to something that opens up entire rabbit holes of disinformation. So that's that's one problem. The other problem is that there are just these toxic sites. So it's much easier to to land in as a young person in one of these 4chans or a toxic site or an encrypted chat room where, or online gaming platform with chat where it's just full of really awful content that is often disguised as jokes. So it's in memes, it's using a lot of satire and irony and humor, and it embeds really dehumanizing content in What looks like a cartoon and then they think it's funny and they think that other people who don't think it's funny like their parents or teachers or adults um, are just, you know, triggered snowflakes who don't get the joke. And so it, it, it creates plausible deniability and it allows them to dismiss a lot of that content, but also it desensitizes them to it at the same time.
1: Really?
0: Thank you for being on today, Cynthia. Dr. Miller-Idris, I'd like to call you. <laughs> Cynthia, Cynthia. Thank, so, you. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for your time. I'm sure you're, you're much in demand right now, as you should be. Uh, yeah. yeah. These people, um, you've said these extremist groups, what they have in common, you've said this before, not tonight, but you've said it before, of course, um, is a sense of threat. Yeah. And I just curious as to this belief system that they have. And um, it's a false belief system, of course. And mm-hmm. and I'm curious as to what the seed is that planted this belief system in their heads. And given the threat, the, the this so-called threat that they feel is non-existent, because it's basically a figment of their imagination, mm-hmm. a conspiracy theory, if you will. Doesn't this therefore point to it being a sort of Paranoia. Given paranoia is defined as a fear of non-existent threats.
2: Yeah, oh, that's a great question. I mean, so the the you know as as Senator Brown was saying that the origins of these conspiracies are age-old, right? We've always seen this kind of hateful mm-hmm. content, but this this mm-hmm. recent one that we've been talking about a lot over the last couple of weeks called the Great Replacement that term was coined 11 years ago, and that happened, it was a French scholar who wrote, you know, a kind of academic treatise called The Great Replacement, which said that, you know, it it said that basically white Christian civilizations were being replaced with multicultural ones, and that it was an orchestrated effort, that that, you know, that there's a conspiracy kind of behind it, that this is happening, and that... What happened? It that coincided right around the same time as social media was taking off and online content was taking off, and it enabled a global group of white supremacists online who are already networked to kind of share it and and become. I hate to use this word, but they kind of inspired by it and by each other, and so they okay. there's a whole ecosystem out there where they they share this content. And Then, for example, in the Christchurch attacker who killed fifty one people, fifty one Muslims. In New Zealand, um, he live streamed that attack, and he called his manifesto. He titled it "The Great Replacement." So, a lot of what came after were copycat, essentially, including the Mm -hmm. Buffalo attack, uh, the El Paso attack. These are copycat in Poway, California, uh, on the synagogue. These are people who really wanted to emulate him, who see themselves. They sometimes refer to themselves as disciples against him as a saint, or against others as saints. Um, So, it created this whole ecosystem of um, networks. And that's why I don't like to use the term lone wolf, because they're not alone. They are. They may be loners mm-hmm. sometimes in their physical lives, wherever they live, but mm-hmm. they're quite networked and quite socially connected to other uh, people mm-hmm. online. And, and that, that whole belief, they, they come to believe, as they radicalize, they come to believe that that it is um, an existential threat and that they're called upon. So it's, I often say it's, it's not just that violence becomes a means to an end, but it becomes the preferred solution to what they see as a threat. And that's why they see themselves as martyrs um, or as heroes even, as doing. So when you heard the the uh, attacker in the synagogue in Pittsburgh, his sort of last words before he went in was, you know, I can't stand by and watch while my people get slaughtered. I'm going in, right? Like, he believed that he was doing something heroic. That's how twisted it gets. And so, you know, how that process happens and to whom it happens and who becomes violent compared to somebody who holds those beliefs but doesn't become violent, are all completely a mystery, to be honest. In the in the research, we don't really have enough evidence about how to predict, which is one of the reasons why I think you have to do everything you can to prevent people from believing this stuff to begin with. It doesn't work to just intervene, you know, try to interrupt the violent outcomes of this. You have to kind of try to stop this before the radicalization trajectory begins.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it almost you know, sounds Sorry, Marilla, you say that again?
0: Uh, it almost sounds delusional, Yes, these these sort of belief systems that they have, the whole, this whole construct that they have. I would say yes,
2: in. except, you know, the reason why I don't like to use words like delusional or paranoid per se is because sometimes people then start to use words like, well, they're just mentally ill or deranged, you know, and... <laughs> And I think sometimes that can or evil, right we hear those phrases a lot, um, and I think when you say things like you know it was an evil act or this isn't who we are," or that person was deranged or mentally ill it it um, it removes the responsibility that we all have to see how we can tackle supremacist beliefs in our own everyday lives because that's where a lot of this begins. If you want to you know, inoculate kids against that propaganda, um, you have to have conversations with them about race and racism or else they get explanations for the inequalities that they see in the world in these online spaces. And that opens up gateways and rabbit holes that they sometimes then... Go deeper and deeper into. So, you know. I, so I, I agree with you in the sense that yes, it's it's so delusional. But it but because sometimes people, I think it's also in their minds it's very rational. They really believe right that there mm-hmm. is. I mean, it's the orchestrated part is uh, the the real. When you get into the conspiracies, that part just it does feel completely paranoid. But it is in their minds a very rational progression, and then they act violently upon it. And I think we have to understand it as something that could be prevented, um, not not only as a mental health problem, if that makes sense.
0: You, um, you
2: brought up a word that I was going to ask you about, and
0: that is evil. Yeah. And of course, the definition of evil, whether it's in the Bible or society or psychology or whatever, is that it's a morally reprehensible, wicked, sinful act. Yeah. and. My observation is the same as yours. That's the media is always so quick to call it evil. Even Mm -hmm. the economists are saying that. And to me, that's such a massive umbrella term. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't even begin to put the finger on the pulse of this huge problem. How do you think we can start recharacterizing this so that policymakers can, you know, stop resorting to this quick fix word? Oh, it's just evil acting out.
2: Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, the problem with the word like evil, which you know, when you look at the definition of evil, of course it's morally reprehensible, and, you know, I mean, all of the things that you said I would say are 100% true, but then you end up with, um, sometimes people, this feeling can be, well, you th- you have to throw up your hands because it's just as if the devil, you know, the devil himself rose up and there's no control over the situation, nothing you can do against evil. I mean, how can you combat pure evil, right? And and so I right. think that's that's the problem I have with that term, is that it it seems to separate from what, you know, what people can do um, in concrete terms to prevent any of this. So, you know, I, I, we often in my lab and, and I advocate for a way of thinking about all of this radicalization to violence as a public health problem, more like the way that we have treated, you know, so not the way you treat evil like a serial killer, but treat it like the way we treat cardiac disease or diabetes, which is that, you don't just treat the symptoms of the disease once they manifest and try to lock everybody up and isolate them from the rest of the world. Instead, you also try to educate everybody about, you know, in a in a community about the things they can do to with healthy eating or exercise to prevent the onset of that disease. And so in this case, that would be, uh, understand, you know, media and digital literacy that helps people understand what propaganda looks like and what source integrity looks like, so that they start to reject those things that they see online. It's basic education about race and racism, so that they recognize mm-hmm. that propaganda for what it is. Uh, human rights education, so that they don't, they, that they have a rootedness in understanding the humanity of everyone. Right? I mean, there is some civic education, so you're not, you know, advocating for civil war when you start talking about some of these other. Uh, movements that are anti-government. So there are a lot of things I think that we can do if we start to see this. The Germans call it in the the post-war context after the Holocaust, um, defensive democracy. The idea that you can't combat the fringe effectively only by looking at the fringe um, and only by paying attention to the fringe. You also, because there's always going to be propaganda that comes from them, and part of the effort has to be to strengthen the resilience of the entire system and the mainstream so that people will automatically reject whatever comes at them from the fringe. And I think when you think about the way that online environments work, we... We'll never succeed just by trying to surveil or monitor or ban or arrest our way out of this. We have to also invest in strengthening everything in the mainstream that we can so that people reject this outright. They recognize it and they reject it and that communities understand early warning signs, know how to get help, know how to refer people to get help. Because it's way easier to prevent this stuff than it is to intervene after it's already
1: you know, after a young person or an older person has already radicalized. Um, I uh, we should mention that your latest book, Hate in the Homeland, the new global <laughs> far right, uh, is something that everybody should read. Uh, I mean, I've only, uh, I'm sorry, I haven't read the whole book, but I've gotten into it a little bit. And and you talk about better digital media literacy tools yeah. is that what you mean it's education is that what it's you mean it's a lot by of it i mean
2: so you know we i run a research lab and we we design and test interventions and one of the things we work on is you know is in partnership with some folks in the tech sector called pre-bunking or sometimes it's called attitudinal inoculation. It's It works the way that a vaccine works in the sense that you have to um, equip people with those tools before they encounter the propaganda. Um, but what we have found is we use it with videos, so we create videos to teach people about the propaganda. They, It's a very, uh, you know, it, it essentially teaches them how manipulation works online related to a particular kind of propaganda. And so once people understand, for example, that guess what? Almost every conspiracy theory has the same scaffold. Like, there's always a cabal of elites. There's always orchestration. And, like, once you start to map out that scaffold, they recognize it. So, and then they don't like to find out that they're being manipulated. You know, nobody wants to find out they're a pawn in somebody else's endgame. And we, you know, my favorite study in this comes from the public health sector, all of this work. And, um, there was a good research study, the Washington Post wrote it up a few years ago, about how after decades of trying to teach teenagers, basically, about healthy eating choices, by telling them all the consequences of bad eating, you know, for for later in their life, like cholesterol and, you know, BMI and heart disease or whatever, it, that had zero impact on any of the behavioral choices that kids made. But when they taught them that uh, about the effective ways that fast food companies use advertising, to get them to make choices that are not actually in their own interest but line the pockets of, you know, fast food companies. And they showed them how it works and how effective that advertising can be. That actually changed the behavior of the kids. They started making healthier eating choices. And the really interesting thing is it changed the behavior of boys more than girls. So what we took away from that is, you know, nobody likes to be find out that they're being manipulated, but especially teenage boys. And so, you know, you can equip people. They still have freedom of, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of choice. Nobody's telling them, you know, you have to think this way, but we want them to have the tools to recognize and know what's going on online. Just like we've taught, you know, a whole generation of people not to click on those emails that are phishing for their bank account information. Some people still make the mistake, right? But a lot more people are better educated about it. And we think that, you know, it, you can scale this up and teach people. Um, you can teach military uh, folks, you know, about the kind of propaganda that might come their way because extremist groups are trying to recruit them. We can teach uh, people as they move, transition into veteran life. You can teach people when they are in school. You know, anytime they're coming, entering in, you could have them, you know, before you Uh, sign up for an online gaming platform. Maybe you have to watch a 30-second video that teaches you about the kind of content you might encounter just as a way of building some resilience to it. So those are the kinds of things, when we talk about media and digital literacy, it's about safeguarding people who are entering an information environment that's really different from what any of us um, really understand, I think, as adults especially because we maybe are not spending quite as much time in those spaces as a lot of our young people are.
1: Well, you know, I have this theory that people don't seek out knowledge, uh, especially on the Internet. They seek out information that agrees with them, that makes them feel comfortable Mm -hmm. with their own beliefs and prejudices. So if that's true, how do you get this information to people? Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's a real problem, right?
2: Yeah, it is. I mean, that's part of why So we've been testing it in videos as short as 30 seconds um, and we've gotten it down to 30 seconds to sh- and test it on, on platforms with 2,000 people and show that actually you can teach people to not be persuaded by propaganda in a really short amount of time and so those can be run as advertisements. They can be run um, you know, as uh, in an educational curricula. We, we did an 11-minute one um, video that's animated about the Google with the Baird Olsman Foundation, and then we built an educational curricular guide around that so teachers could use it in their classrooms. I teach with it, too, to teach people how somebody could be persuaded through misinformation online to join up with a Civil War-oriented group um, even though, you know, he was a good person, he just he, he started to believe things that weren't true, that he was reading online, and then eventually discovered that there were ways to check facts online, and he got himself out of it. And, and then we showed that to 512 people, or 521 people, and and um, we, we found that watching that video actually helped other people understand, um, the regular public understand, that they should use local government and fact-checking websites as the source for information rather than social media or friendship networks. So, you know, there are a lot of different... I think it's going to take a lot of different strategies. There's no one, um, you know, magic pill here to, to fix it. But if we scale up our resources, you know, in, in the ways that a lot of our allies do overseas to see this problem, not just as a problem of law enforcement, But as a problem of health and human services and of education and of labor and youth and arts and culture, you can start to see that, you know, we could be working these into theater, into television. I mean, there are lots of different ways to think about how you can equip people with knowledge the way that we have about smoking or drunk driving or other kinds of um, challenges that we've encountered that people are better equipped now to confront.
1: Well, it's time for another good question. So, Marilia? You're (laughs) on.
0: So, um, a a couple of questions. One is if you could talk um, about exactly what your lab does. I'm very familiar with what science labs do because I used to be one, Um, but I'm not um, familiar, and, and for our listeners, exactly what. Your uh, lab does in the yeah. uh, social sciences.
2: Sure. Uh, so we have three different divisions in my lab. So uh, one of ours one of our divisions equips communities with tools to be better uh, prepared to uh, recognize and respond more proactively. It's to youth radicalization in particular. So uh, we partnered with the Southern Poverty Law Center for most of that work, and we, for mm-hmm. example, have created a, a guide. This is all free. Um, I can provide the website. It's, it's on the Southern Poverty Law Center's website in the backslash peril, so www.splcenter.org backslash peril. It's all free. We have it in multiple languages, um, guides for parents, for teachers, for coaches, mental health counselors. So we created this big guide for parents and caregivers right at the start of the pandemic because we got very worried about um, teenagers pivoting online and parents not really being aware and all the other adults in the community, you know, sort of disappearing who would normally recognize red flags. So we wanted them to be equipped to recognize red flags, but also know how to respond more proactively. And then we tested it with 750 parents and pre- and post test, and so we do this kind of stuff to make sure everything is evidence-based. And we learned a lot of really interesting things. So we found that um, uh, it only takes seven minutes of reading for parents to test better, so to learn more about some of those red flags and warning signs of propaganda that their kids might be encountering online, and to feel more empowered to intervene. Uh, but we also found that... Uh, that worked. It worked for everybody except one group. Um, did not, and one measure, you know. So the the most educated group of parents in our study did not improve their ability to recognize online misinformation. And the reason why is because they came into the study far more confident than every other participant that they already knew how to do it. And um, which won't surprise any of your highly educated listeners out there. I hope they recognize that slight arrogance in themselves, I say that as a highly educated person, that you think you already know it, you don't think you need this help, and then they got less confident once they saw how coded and complicated it was, and so we saw that as a kind of win because it uh, corrected their overconfidence, Um, but we also realized through doing that that we're never going to, those parents are never going to reach out for help on their own, so then our lab initiated a whole series of outreach, writing op-eds. We wrote an op-ed for USA Today, telling parents, you know, it only takes seven minutes to um, to be better equipped to recognize some of these warning signs of predators online or propaganda, and to really safeguard your kids in a better way, and to get help. and um, And so that's we we see that as a kind of campaign side of what we do to communicate mm-hmm. with the public about. The resources that we make available so we're doing that with faith leaders in texas right now with a toolkit because they came to us asking for help we're doing that with teachers in vermont Um, we have work going on in michigan and then these community guides that are for everyone um, that we create and test so that's sort of one whole division then we have two other divisions that do Video-based work and you know trying to reach people online to teach them, and then we have a global division that is trying to create dialogue and shared um, sort of lessons learned from promising practices overseas. Uh, the same way that we communicate about intelligence issues globally, we believe we need to have those conversations <clears throat> about prevention as well.
1: Uh, is it my is it my imagination, or is? is there been a shift in this radicalization from uh, taking actions against government to taking actions against people. In other words, you know, we certainly over the years seen the Oklahoma City bombing and the bombing of other government buildings, the Pentagon, most recently the Capitol insurrection. But it seems to me that it's also taken on a... um, uh, a more personal, uh, yeah. a m- more personal thing, where where we're now going after people in grocery stores rather than government institutions that we hate. Has that changed? And yeah, and why? I Does mean, that I think you know out. when
2: you look at the history of the KKK, racist kind of vigilante groups, they were always targeting. Um, civilians, right, are always targeting ordinary people, and um, in in horrific ways, right? So the entire histi- history of lynching and and other attacks like that, um, you know, I think we're really and and, and globally, right? Um, when you look at white supremacist extremist attacks globally, they have targeted civilians. But over the past, I would say, you know, since especially since the the horrific attack in Oslo in two thousand eleven. Uh, 12, which was, um, you know, killed 77 people, most of whom were teenagers in a summer camp for progressive politicians. Right? So he targeted uh, what he thought would be future leaders that would be pro-immigrant. That And that was motivated by the same type of conspiracy theory about a Great Replacement, Uh, although it was not called that, it's called Arabia in the European context, the idea that the false claim that Muslims are orchestrating, elite Muslims are orchestrating an expansion of the caliphate across Europe. And um, so we saw that, we have seen, you know, a Sikh temple be attacked here, the black church in Charleston, uh, in El Paso, and Christchurch in New Zealand. We've had a couple of other terrorist attacks in Germany. So periodically we have had these over the last... 10 12 years um, and and prior to that there was activity going on on the white supremacist side but it wasn't we weren't paying attention to it very well as a country because of the the intelligence uh, and law enforcement focus on on international and Islamist terrorism after 9/11 so this is sort of steadily growing and you can see that documented in the number of hate groups that really Reached a record-breaking level after President Obama was elected, so that's when you started to see the uptick really begin in 2008 2009. Um, But we just, as a country, were not paying attention to it very well. So uh, the FBI now, you know, is really reporting, and you know, the the Department of Homeland Security's threat assessment under both the Trump administration and the Biden administration, um, intelligence authorities have released you know, pretty clear guidance that uh, within the domestic extremist spectrum, the the biggest threat to civilians comes from white supremacist extremists. Uh, the biggest threat to government and elected officials comes from the anti-government extremists. So we do have growth on both sides of it, um, and it is that the white supremacist extremists who do represent the biggest threat right now Uh, to civilians have been growing and we're growing unfortunately kind of in an unchecked way or without people really on the law enforcement side paying as much attention to them and they readily admit that now that's not an original critique of mine you know that is something that has been pretty widely acknowledged and started to change around 2019 I would say Uh, you know after Charlottesville happened and then a couple of years later after Pittsburgh and Uh, El Paso, I think we really began to see an acknowledgement and a shift in this country.
1: Uh, Let me also ask you, what about old people? Mm -hmm. You talk a lot about young people. Yeah,
2: that's a great
1: question.
2: We we had somebody
1: on our show. Well, excuse me, we just had somebody on our show that was at the Capital Six insurrection and he said, and that was his specialty. He's a University of Maryland professor of revolutions. He says he's been to many, many of these demonstrations, but he'd never seen as many old people. Yeah, that that's absolutely true. I mean,
2: so, you know, one of those strange, there are a lot of things about the pandemic kind of era that nobody knows. Are we seeing a trend that is going to continue? Or is this kind of a, you know, a, a pandemic? blip in the data. Um, But there's no question that during the pandemic, we saw a shift to the rapid radicalization of older Americans and and globally too, especially around QAnon and around um, kind of anti-government anger that often coalesced either around false information about vaccines or about COVID itself or, uh, you know, in resistance to lockdowns, right? So that, and then the massive disinformation about the election kind of brought all of those people together. So, you know, one of the strange things we saw both at some of the state Capitol protests uh, and even a little bit prior to COVID, we saw that in Richmond with the Second Amendment protests where you started to see people show up who normally would never be in the same place, right? So anti-government extremists, in the state capitol protests with anti-vaxxers, QAnon supporters. Um, and then on January 6th, we had white supremacists, proud boys, ordinary Trump voters, you know, militia members, um, QAnon supporters, like, you would anti-maskers in the mix, like, you would normally, these are people that don't actually share goals, even though they're all outside maybe of the mainstream Spectrum, They have different goals and objectives. They wouldn't normally collaborate or cooperate, but what we saw on that day is that they would come together on what, what I often call the lowest common denominator, which was massive disinformation around the election. So we had not really seen that before. Um, they had tried to unify across the right uh, in Charlottesville. In fact, that was called Unite the Right, if you remember the name of that rally, because they were trying to show that they could come together, what is bring together what is normally a very fragmented spectrum of groups that fight with each other a lot and show some kind of bigger show of force. That failed. I mean, it was a you know horrific event, unite the right and shocked the nation in many ways. But but they remained just as fragmented, if not more fragmented afterward. Um, so they didn't get stronger. They didn't cooperate in any way. Uh, but then on January sixth, twenty twenty one, they did joined forces with a bunch of other groups and that that began to show something different than what we had seen before. So, you know, they um, so the answer to your question is that the data normally historically is that youth are a greater risk for radicalization in part because they're looking for kind of a sense of identity and Um, belonging and meaning and they're, you know, they're searching for things and they're, you know, they get more easily persuaded. And they're also a greater risk of violence historically. Um, And those two things have been true. But during the pandemic, we saw this very strange thing, which is that people in their 40s and 50s and 60s were actually going pretty quickly down a rabbit hole of disinformation about the election, about QAnon, about vaccines, about COVID and lockdowns that actually mobilized some of them into, um, into violent or nonviolent action at state capitals and at and on January 6th. So nobody really knows. I mean, I think the midterm elections and the 2024 elections are going to be really important markers for us to understand and obviously try to prevent as much violence as possible. But, but this is a moment where we don't really know whether we're still facing that same period of, uh, of older people radicalizing, or whether what we've been seeing in the last few weeks with these 18-year-olds, teenagers, um, you know, enacting horrific violence is more likely to be the way that things continue. So the, the, the short answer is we don't really know, but yes, you're absolutely right. We have been seeing really strange things with older people radicalizing as well.
1: Maralia?
0: So... I have two questions, and they're sort of related. If you get down to it, are related. The first question is: um, In your research, have you seen what sets apart somebody like a Timothy McVeigh, who does a sort of impersonal um, killing by using a bomb, because he's not there actually pulling the trigger, if you will, and killing each person one by one, versus this guy or, or the Parkland shooter or the um, uh, the school just it, a Sandy Hook. Um, who, you know, who actually pulled the trigger on, on, on each and every person. I yeah. question. a um, question. It seems to me it's the best of times and the worst of times. We have all these analytical tools from the social sciences, indeed your field of research, mm-hmm. as well as the biological sciences like neurology, neuropsychology, and so on. And yet we have policy or, or no policy, no legislation that, that even... Um, we have policy or, or, or legislation, I should say, that lacks this pinpoint focus on the cause behind violence yeah. and and this true cohesive understanding of this very complicated matrix behind this 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 horrible social ill. A matrix, a matrix that takes in um, all the sorts of different academic disciplines that I, I kind of mentioned. Um, yeah. And I wonder how much of this science is being totally ignored. By politicians yeah. and policymakers at their own peril. Are yeah. they just spending too much time fundraising, campaigning, or yeah. are they just completely impervious to?
2: Yeah, no, yeah. it's a it's a good question. I mean, I think I think we do know more than we've ever known before, and that's you know that is a good thing. We have we do have increasing amounts of science. I mean, to be fair, you know, my research lab has only been around for two years. We're really toddlers in the space, and we've you know we we are finishing what we think of as our own proof of concept phase and and everything we've done so far has worked, right? So we've just basically been saying, you know, it's sort of time to stop the clinical trials at this point. If we were in medical research, we would, you know, be giving everybody who had the placebo the the treatment now, like it's time to show, you know, scale up. But, But part of the problem is, it's, you know, maybe it's that people aren't paying enough attention, but two things. One, I think People in, in the sciences and social sciences, most of us are not really trained very well to communicate with the public. Um, And that is, you know, so we tend to live in our own little world and talk to each other and publish in our own academic journals, and that's how you're incentivized, Mm -hmm. especially junior scholars, to get tenure and progress through your career, et cetera. So those incentives on the academic side don't really necessarily match up with what's needed, right? And so we need some channels, to, and this is a great one, right, to, to have opportunities to talk to the public and to communicate and to talk to public policy makers and and folks who are decision makers, I think is really, really important, and people need to be trained and incentivized to do that. But we also, Mm -hmm. I mean, this country has, compared to what, what our allies overseas spend, you know, Germany just invested a billion euro in their new initiative, a three-year initiative to combat right-wing extremism, which, by the way, is called—they call it 89. There are 89 specific measures in it. It's called the 89 measures to combat racism, anti-Semitism, and right-wing extremism. So they combine this, you know, uh, issues of racism and and anti-racism with combating of right-wing extremism, which I think is the right way to do it. You know, we. Our only federal government money that 's dedicated to prevention um, is in our Department of Homeland Security, and that is twenty million dollars, which is was doubled last year from the previous amount, which was ten million dollars and we 're a country what four times as big at least as Germany so you know we, we just put a fraction of the resources into that prevention side, which means there 's a lot less being done in terms of testing um, in the, in that case of Germany, for example, but also in Norway it's like a dozen agencies who are involved. It's not just the security agencies, but it's, you know, everything you can imagine from, you know, from theater programs and religious programs to, um, you know, to, to education and health and human services, labor, departments of labor. So it's a much more holistic, whole of government approach to addressing the problem. And so, I would say there are multiple layers of challenges that we face, you know, in terms of people paying attention, in terms of the scientists being equipped to communicate about what we already know, and then there just not being as many resources circulating to communities or to researchers to test and expand and scale up. Um, so all of those things are problematic. You know, in the in the first question that you asked, which is about the difference between the kinds of tactics or that... that Uh, you know, that terrorists use, I think, I I I don't, nobody will know if, you know, if we'll see the kind, you know, the the bombings, of course, were also really popular among the far left in the 1970s and early 1980s, so there was a long history of the use of bombs on the terrorist spectrum, and then McVeigh as well, with the worst, um, you know, the worst domestic terrorist attack that we'd had in 1995, with 168 people dying. But, what you see now, there, I hate to use the word, but it is with the the use of automatic weapons. It is a little bit gamified, especially that now that they are uh, live streaming and trying to live stream and communicate that to people on these online platforms. Um, as we saw with the Buffalo shooter, even right before, you know, it's, we don't know yet. It's just being talked about, but it, it, you know, he was trying to have people be able to watch that awful attack um, in real time, and so that is. You know they are they are in a world in which they're trying. There's a you know they really are networked online and trying to emulate each other. And I think that's part of what's important to understand. You know about the horror here is that it's that the word terrorism you know it terrorizes entire communities as we have seen. It's it's horrific and awful. And then also there are this there's this subset of people, small though they are, who take it up and and try to emulate or imitate it and, and move on with it. And so. Um, some of that is very social media oriented itself, um, and I, you know, so in that sense, I would expect this type of uh, attack to also continue. Uh, but, but it's hard to predict, it. and we have seen periods of time where we would have seen more bombs being used, and that's the case in other countries as well. Uh, and certainly, we have to pay attention to that. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, given that you, you talk about Oslo and Christchurch and Texas, uh, this is obviously a worldwide phenomenon. Is it becoming, is there more connectedness now uh, in, in this worldwide um, yeah, effort Yeah, network to kind of. Done? Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah they are, Sorry. there
2: always was, you know, when I first started studying this in the late 1990s. Um, I was in Germany studying it in the German context, and and there was a lot of global circulation of white supremacist ideas and white supremacist extremism through music. Um, There was this sort of hardcore, heavy, racist, heavy metal racist sort of culture, and they would have festivals. Uh, And so these bands would travel, and so you had followers of the bands who would, you know, um, share CDs at that time, cassette tapes or CDs, and would show up at these concerts, and there were, you know, concerts that connected them, and then those became kind of gathering points where they could share propaganda and plan and meet each other and connect and network. But if you take that, that still required someone, you know, it was much harder to communicate about what they were doing when they didn't have online, there's no streaming of music, there's no downloading of music. Um, they had to physically go, you had to travel, it was expensive. And you had to learn about it basically by somebody handing you a CD or sharing music with you. I mean, these weren't songs that were played on the radio, right? So, you know, that you take that and you amplify that times, I don't know, a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand by how easy it is to encounter this content online and find the same kind of stuff that draws them in through the culture. T-shirts that have coded racist, you know, propaganda on it, memes that have, that share it in joke form. There's still that kind of music out there that circulates, but now they don't have to, you know, get a plane ticket and travel around Europe to see these concerts. They can just download it or live stream it or listen to it themselves. Um, So it's just much easier to to encounter, to share, um, to embed the content in jokes. And so it's it was always globally networked, but it's much easier now. And English itself, of course, has spread. Um, and so you know, the last two terrorist attacks in Germany, one of the ways I often explain this is those two terrorist attacks were nationalist attacks in Germany against Jews and Muslims. But they, in both cases, the attacker either live streamed the attack or wrote the manifesto in English. So even though it was a German nationalist attack, they were, the audience for them was a global set of speakers who they wanted to sort of influence and inspire. So, and that, I think that, that makes it easier to understand what, what I mean by this global network than it does for those of us who, who live in a country that speaks English and um, where we communicate in English. Because there's no reason for them to live stream or write it in, in English unless who, the people who they're talking to are this globally networked group of other people online.
1: Uh, We're starting to run out of time here, um, doctor, so let me ask you, what do you want to say that we haven't asked you? Is there anything that you want to add that you think is important for our audience to know?
2: I think, you know, thank you for the question. I think there are a couple other things to know. I mean, we were talking a lot about the Great Replacement and the racist and anti-immigrant roots of a lot of this, but the misogynistic part of it is really strong as well. And I've often seen that the first memes that young people are starting to encounter and circulate are really deeply misogynistic ones. They think they're funny. They are um, joking about sexual assault or rape. They are threatening sexual assault and rape. They're trolling. Docs, you know, they're, they're harassing women online, young women or girls online. And that kind of culture of bad or harmful or toxic behavior um, is linked, and we know this in the research, is linked to the persuasiveness of the propaganda. So people, one of the things we found in our research is people who spend more time Um, and what we call harmful online behaviors or bad activity online, um, like trolling others, are actually more easily persuaded by white supremacist propaganda than other people. So it's not just where you spend time online, but how you spend time online. And um, I think that has a lot of implications for the way we educate people, the way we talk about digital citizenship online, about behaviors online. Um, and it also says something, we, we, we work with a lot of parents, we get a lot of questions from parents, um, and a lot of questions that are just heartbreaking, because by the time a parent is reaching out to us, often you know, they're, they're dealing with a child that is expressing extremely uh, troubling things, extreme misogyny, um, threats. Or you know, and they're they're having trouble finding people who can help them. And I mean, so if they're reaching out to a random professor who they found online, you know, they're they're pretty um, they're pretty far down often. And but often it's the first things that they hear about are the misogyny. And you know, we hear this from mothers, for example, who have uh, boys who just won't listen to them anymore. So I think it's really important to see the intersectionality of all of this and to see how dehumanizing or hateful content connects uh, online and and how it opens up gateways to um, to other things. I would also just say I think it's really important for parents or teachers like anybody almost everybody out there as an aunt or an uncle or coaches somebody or as a youth mentor I mean as, encounter is a neighbor is you know has uh, friends that their kids have over for dinner you know at some point that it's so important to be listening and to be curious about what kids are encountering online. We often see that parents react with shame when their kids say things, like uh, making a joke about the Holocaust, for example. That's a really common one because there's so much content circulating online in joke form, unfortunately, about the Holocaust. And and then parents react with shame. They scold their kids. You know, if you didn't learn that from us, that's not our values, and that can drive them further online. So one of the things we advise parents is, you know, try to – it's hard, but try to react with curiosity. Treat your kids like um, experts and ask them, you know, to explain what a meme is, to explain how do you encounter them? Can you change them? How do you change it? How does the author of it change? And then how do you share it? And you can really learn a lot about it. And sometimes it's easier to talk not to your own kids, but to other, you know, kids you coach or um, your your kids' friends, right? So, I think the more dialogue we can have about these things, the more that adults understand the worlds that kids inhabit online, the fact that they don't come into school just with a blank slate. You know, they're just like they have a home life. They also have an online life that that filters over into any kind of interaction you're trying to have with them. I think that's kind of the most important message I would have.
1: Well, I think that's a great note to end on uh, because I think we all have to take responsibility for this. Uh, as a parent, as an elected official, I know I feel responsible, and I think every one of us has to take responsibility for this. And I want to thank you for being with us uh, today. Uh, I also want to thank my great co-host, who has the great questions, uh, and and we'll see you all next week. But uh, tell me, as we close here, uh, doctor, uh, is there a, is there a, a website that people can go to to learn more about what you're doing?
2: Yes, thank you. Um, we are we are in the process of updating our website. We have trouble k- keeping up with it, but you can uh, check out, it's www.american.edu backslash peril, which is P-E-R-I-L. And uh, we are, sometime in the next couple of weeks, updating it with all of our new findings and tools, uh, but there are links there to our animated videos, our active videos, also our guides for teachers and parents, and all the toolkits that we have, so uh, along with some other resources um, that will be coming out soon for higher education. So uh, stay tuned and, um, and hopefully uh, folks will find something there to, to help them in their own communities.
1: Uh, Dr. Cynthia miller Idris, thank you so much for being with us and for the important work you do. Um, Marilia Duffels, thanks as always. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. We always dedicate a song at the end of the show to our guests. So here's an oldie but a goodie from the police. One world is enough for all of us. Thank you, Dr. Idris. Thank you, Marilia. See you next week, folks. Thank you, Cynthia. Give the people their
0: right to vote. Give the people their right to vote.